My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. You know how sometimes you have like a conversation that sticks with you? I remember years and years ago talking to the actor Coleman Domingo. Coleman was uh, had a supporting role in this movie called If Beale Street Could Talk. And even though he was a supporting actor, he would say things to me like, Tom, it doesn't matter how many lines my characters have or how many scenes. I want you to see the soul in the characters I play. That stuck with me. And over the years, whenever I would see him in a TV show or a film or something like that, I would notice he always went deep, but deep as a supporting actor. It feels like Hollywood has finally caught up to him. Coleman Domingo has just finished three big movies back to back to back. One of them is his first lead role in a feature film. Just take a listen to this. Each of us are taught in ways both cunning and cruel that we are inadequate and complete. And the easiest way to combat that feeling of not being enough is to find someone we consider less than. Less than because they are poorer than us, or because they are darker than us, or because they desire someone. Our churches and our laws say they should not desire. When we tell ourselves such lies, start to live and believe such lies, we do the work of our oppressors by oppressing ourselves. That's a clip from the new Netflix film, Rustin, where Coleman Domingo plays the late civil rights leader Bayard Rustin, an advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., one of the architects of the March on Washington. And it's a role that is both intense uh, physically and emotionally. But for Coleman Domingo, it's what he's used to because he's been working for years on Broadway, on TV and film. And as you'll hear, even in the circus, here's our conversation. Welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, thank you, Tom. It's good to be here again. Hi. I was uh, very surprised that this is your first lead role. Yeah, right. I know. I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've been working for a long time. You know, I've had leading roles on stage, and you know, I've always been sort of like in ensembles and television. But yeah, this is my first lead role. But I feel like it was, um, I had everything that I needed to actually finally step into these shoes, uh, especially by Rustin in the film Rustin. Uh, because it, it called on everything that I've been doing as a supporting player for years. It called on extraordinary research and character work and development and vocal work and physical work, all the stuff that I've, I've honed for 33 years in the theater and, you know, playing different characters in, in television and film. Uh, see, I was going to ask you, how does it feel? But I'm kind of hearing it. Like you, over the years, have accumulated technical uh, ability uh, leadership uh, ability, yeah. you know, sort of ineffable ability, hmm. all leading to like when the time comes, you can you can do it. I think you're right because I, I, a lot of times I think um, maybe some of my peers step into these roles. Maybe if it's too soon, they don't know the the weight or what they need to do to carry a film, and not only carry a film as a performer, but as a, a leader. Number one on the call sheet is a hefty position. <laughs> especially if you are in every frame of a film and you've got to do your own character work and development and research and then be available to your, uh, your, your co-stars and to the producing team, all departments. 
it calls on a lot. And I don't know if I would have been ready to lead a film like this maybe 10 years ago. I needed to actually have all this underneath me as being a, a supporting player in other films like Beale Street Guitar or Zola, uh, you know, Selma, you name it. I, I was always the one to sort of make sure that I took care of the company in films. I planned dinners, um, anything, you know, make sure that ev everything's working well and operating between cast, crew and producers. That's always been my role. So I've under I understood how to do that. So now to add leading actor on top of it, I was ready. And I feel like, it, and it does feel great because it feels like it's calling on sort of my, uh, my superpowers. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I want to talk about how you accumulated those those superpowers through your through your family and through your your work. But I wanted to start this way uh, in talking about your story a little bit. So I was there the evening that you received the TIFF Tribute Award. Mm. You you know you, I happened to be in the in the audience that night. It was a really beautiful night. And in your speech, you you hinted at a story that I wanted to get from you. Okay. What's the story on on the circus? You started out in the circus. <laughs> Yes, that's one of my very first jobs. When I moved to San Francisco in the early 90s, about 1991, I was an actor, you know, I, I did some studies with some private coaches, you name it. And then, you know, I was trying to get a gig. Yeah. I did educational children's theater for a bit. You know, when you tour around to high schools, you put up the set and take it down. And, then, you know, I saw in the trades one ad for um, a company called Make a Circus. And it was a company that was a political children's circus. That was, it was really, it, <laughs> oh, great. it dealt with like- Oh, great, another one of those. <laughs> another one of those. But it really dealt with the, these 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 themes, but in, in a way for children to understand what's happening in the world and, and learn about civics and all. Really? Through circus? Yes, through circus. Through a company called Make a Circus. So I saw it in the trades. I'd never heard of them. I never thought about it. They were looking for performers who could move and people who are willing to learn. And I was like, well, that sounds like me. I'm like, like I'm 21 and skinny and, and ready to do anything. So uh, I go to the audition and they had these, you know, masters of whether well, clowning and, and gymnastics, you know, they're all there and they're teaching you some beginning skills. And I just had, I was game. And one of my, one of the teachers, his name is Master Lu Yi. He said, oh, Coleman, you have mochi. I said, what's mochi? And he said, uh, you have a big heart. You, you're, you're willing to try and do anything. And so when I was, so I was like, I just soaked it all in. Every, like, so the beginnings of my career was educational children's theater and circus. And so if anyone can really look at my career now, it explains a lot. I'm, I was always willing to try and take a risk and a leap of faith. And, you know, I became an aerial web artist. That's the that rope that you climb up, maybe, up, you know, 150 feet in the air, spinning around, things like that. I did six feet tall stilts. I learned clowning and juggling. I juggled uh, five pins. I juggled five balls. Yeah, man. Um, and I, and I taught, and then I would teach those skills to kids as well. So do you, do you still have them? Do you still knock them out sometimes? Can you still? No, not at all. I did actually, um, go to a circus school in Chicago early this year, just as a, for the show that I have called you are here, um, that's on AMC. And I'm what I was sort of retracing my roots and 
and, and finding out things that, uh, that taught me to be who I am. So I took a, a, a clowning workshop and a service workshop and that stuff hurts now when you're 54 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bo, Bozo retired early. Yeah, you know. The, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, that's the only clown I know. Although, you know, that's not true. I've talked to, I've talked to people on the show that talked to me a little bit about, about clowning and they made me appreciate it on a, on a far deeper level. And when I was doing research for this, I heard you say over and over again that uh, whenever you were asked about the circus, that you were taught how to keep the heart of a clown. Yeah. What, is, what does that mean? There was a teacher named Joan Mencken. She's no longer with us, but she would, she would teach me. She had a clown. One of her famous clowns was called Queenie. And Queenie was a, a rocker. She was funny and weird and open. There's an openness to clowns that I learned about. We have you have to have a, a sense of vulnerability. You know that's that's you're being willing to uh, to fail, to look like a fool, and then also to lead with your heart. You always lead with a sensitive heart that can always be broken at any any point. So I think the heart of a clown, at the core, as I'm thinking about it, is a sense of vulnerability and joy and um, and fearlessness to be wrong to look like a fool, to look absolutely stupid. And then, but knowing that it's going to lead you to somewhere. So I've always used that in my work, even when I'm in rehearsals or I'm on sets, I will always tell a director, hey, for the first four takes, I might not look like what I'm doing. I'm, pro- I'm in process and figuring some stuff out. I've done my research, but now I'm trying to figure out where the cameras are, lighting, how it all operates. I said, but I'm willing to not look perfect. I'm willing for it not to be great. And I think that's okay because I'm, I'm working through and a lot of times people want sort of the um, the produced version very quickly. And I just never work that way. I've never worked that way because that's my, in my core, that's how I discover it and find and make it real and organic each time. It's with a sense of vulnerability and a sense of wanting, being able to say, cool, I might jack this up and it's okay. You got to be able to look stupid. You have to be able to to um, fall on your face. You have to be able to try things and then eventually you'll you'll hone in on it. Yeah, and then you also have to be willing to, again, I, I'm pressing down on vulnerability to be vulnerable and because I think that's where you find love as well. There's love, I know, in my performances because that's what I seek. There's love in some way, shape, or form. Even when I'm playing villains, there's love there. There's grace, there's humility, there's humanity somewhere in there. It's colored in there because that's where I'm coming from. I know um, we, we've been talking a little bit about some of the advice you got o- over the years in your early days as an actor. I know one of the more formative pieces of advice you got was from your your mom. Uh, she gives you some advice that kind of changes everything. Can you tell us what she told you about service? When I was a young actor in San Francisco, I was like any other young actor, just very um, obsessed with themselves and not getting work. <laughs> and, the and the like, actor's wow. journey, by the way. Yeah, the actor's journey. Yeah. And I remember one day my mom, I, was, I think I was just like griping to her on the phone about something, something, and, you know, ridiculous. And she was like, hey, have you, um, I think you should volunteer. You, need, you, you got a lot of time in your hand. You need to volunteer. I was like, volunteer? Why? So she said, I think you need to do something that's not about yourself. And she said, I think, I think it'll be good for you. And because it was something that my mother always did. My mother was always volunteering somewhere. She was with the PTA. She drove our Chevrolet station wagon to pick up lunches for me, for, for me and my class, my whole class for class trips and all. So my mother was always doing things in the community. She was the block captain in our neighborhood. So my mother said, she was like, okay, great. I said, she said, you need to work with kids. She said, you're always good with kids. Is there any way you can volunteer and work with kids? 
And funny enough, I had a friend who was a, a teacher and she said, oh man, you know, man, we would love to have you be, to be considered for an after-school program teacher. There's not a lot, not a lot of men. And like, will you, that'd be a great influence on young boys and young girls, all that stuff. So I got a job as an after-school program teacher. I volunteered and I loved it. I loved it so much. My whole purpose, it wasn't to make money. It was, I was there to help tie their shoe and make sure they had what they needed or did their homework with them. I felt like, and I felt good about myself. And so it was like this gift of service that I've learned that actually fills you up. But does that do something for the acting? Yeah, it really did. Because it really makes you feel like you're doing something for humanity. You're moving the needle. You're using whatever you have, whatever you've created to better somebody else. And that's what I do feel works for me in my acting. You know, I feel like acting is a service job. It is a service job, just like bartending, just like waiting tables. It actually is. I think it is. You're being in service to story, to the company, and then hopefully to humanity in some way with with the work that you choose, you know? I love that, you know, the idea that acting can be a service job. You know, maybe that service is not as obvious as like someone who hands you a shawarma or something like that or helps you cash one of your checks. But Coleman Domingo really believes that he can make a difference with his acting. Let me give an example of that. On the HBO show Euphoria, Coleman plays this former drug addict who's now a sponsor to Zendaya's character, Rue. It is imperative that you believe in something, something greater than yourself. All right? And it can't be the ocean or your favorite song. And it can't be the movement or the people or the words. You've got to believe in the poetry because everything else in your life will fail you, including yourself. His character delivers hard truths about life and addiction. And Coleman gets a lot of letters from people saying that that performance changed their lives, that he helped them understand themselves or their kid who's struggling to stay sober. That's what Coleman Domingo means when he says service through acting. In the next part of our conversation, you're going to hear how Coleman tries to make a difference behind the scenes on set and that these are habits that started when he was on Broadway. I was reading an interview with you where you talked about something called being an equity deputy. <laughs> yes. What, is, what does that mean? For all my theater people out there, I don't know if they have this role in uh, Canadian theaters, but in America, with actors equity, there's, you're always voted on the first day for someone to be the equity deputy. Now, equity, now, you don't wear a badge or anything like that. You're not like a sheriff. But it's a position where you're the one to be the go-between between yourself and producers if, if there's any needs, any questions about safety, about hours, about working conditions, you name it. So it's really like sort of you're deputized <laughs> to take care of the company. Right. And usually the, most people look at me like, oh, that's the one who can do it because you need to have a sense of diplomacy. OK, so just to be clear, you're not always the one raising your hand. People are looking at you going like he's going to do it. That's who's going to yeah, do it. Yeah, people are always looking at me. I, no one wants to be the equity deputy usually. But at some point you realize you look around, you're like, I'm the best one for the job. I know, I know, after a while you realize you're like, I'm actually the best one to do it. I'll volunteer myself. But that's service. Yeah, because you're like, you know, I care about the company and I want things to go well. And I think I know how to do it. I won't say I'm perfect at everything, but like that, I know how to do. I know how to look after people. I'm I'm somebody who knows how to throw a good party. And and it's consistent. And I know that that's a gift that I have. I know how to curate the whole thing. And so basically the equity, equity deputy is sort of like being a great party planner as well, making sure you're looking out for everybody. I was talking about your mom just then and her teaching you about service. 
I also read that she wrote Oprah a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. On your behalf when you were starting out. Is that true? Yeah. She wrote the Oprah all the time. Why? Like, I would say at least minimum six times because I had at least six conversations with her about it. But she would just casually say, well, you know, I wrote Oprah today. I was like, why? <laughs> she said, because Oprah can help you. She, she helps people on her show. Okay, how's she going to help me? Uh, you know, she just needs to know you. And if she knows about you, get you on her show. People will know how fantastic of an actor you are. Oh. I'm like, oh. And of course, for me, I was just like, that's, that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> it just didn't make sense. You know, I was very much a realist in a way. But my mother was always, she would always say things like, well, you got to play the game to win. She said, so I wrote letters. <laughs> so that always showed my mother had so much faith and she was um, a dreamer and someone who just believed. And I think she, in turn, she taught me that. I don't know if I had that initially, but I knew that she, I learned from her to actually have a bit more faith yeah. in things that I can't see. Um, and I look at my, I look at my career now. This is all, this is all my mother's faith. It, it, it has to be. And I, and I think she impressed that upon me to have some belief in faith where I'm living, my home, all that stuff. It's so far from the realms of where I grew up. Yeah. It, and I, and I have to believe that it was a incredible amount of faith that was poured in me and around me that eventually seeped in, you know, <laughs> you know, sometimes you go, got to go on the wishes and prayers of others. You know, even if you don't have them yourself, you're like, okay, let me believe it because you believe it. <laughs> Did you ever mention to Oprah your mom's letters? Absolutely. Just last year. Last year, I was on a hike with Oprah in Maui and she, it just, it dawned on me. I was like, because I literally we're just going on this beautiful, beautiful hike and it's gorgeous. And somehow there was a group of us, a group of maybe 25 people. And we just kept sort of moving in and out of each other's spaces. And suddenly it was me and Oprah walking together privately. And then I just said, hey. And it's weird because I don't like to sort of like, Oprah has become such a friend and a dear to me that I never want her to feel like she's Oprah yeah. with me. Yeah. The, that pressure yeah. of like, you know, yeah. usually when people meet Oprah, they fall out and they cry. And like, you changed my life. I'm like, yeah, I treat her like, I treat her as someone who's just dear in my life. And yeah. like, anyone, like I would treat you as well. Yeah. So I say to her, I say, I say, hey, uh, can I tell you something? She said, what? What is it? I said, my mother wrote you like six times. She said, what? I said, yeah, she wrote you six, about six times. And I think I finally realized that her letters were answered. And she just stood there. And I don't know if she just held her, held her breath and looked at me. And we didn't say anything else. We just, she just held my hand and then we just kept walking. And that's all that needed to be said was like, we never know how we're supposed to be connected. And it dawned on me in that moment that these were the dreams of my mother. What was your mom's name? Edith. Edith. Let me reintroduce you here. I'm Tom Bauer. I'm speaking to the actor Coleman Domingo. He stars in the new film Rustin on Netflix. It's about the often overlooked civil rights leader, Bayard Rustin, advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., one of the major architects of the March on Washington. I, I use overlooked there. I, I highlight it there on on purpose because, especially compared to MLK, I mean, incredibly um, o- overlooked, especially in popular culture. When did you first hear about Bayard Rustin? I would like to say he's not over, not only overlooked, he's unsung and practically erased. And I first learned about Bayard Rustin when I was about nineteen years old oh. as a student at Temple University in Philadelphia, and um, I joined the African American Student Union. 
it's and I joined it because I wanted to find out more about my own history because I feel like there was a lack of that. You know, you're looking for North stars in many ways. And so I went, I joined this African-American student union and we're having a conversation about the civil rights movement and Bayer Rustin's name came up about the architect being the architect of the March on Washington and all these, and I, we, we inquired a bit more and we're like, oh, he was a Quaker and he sang uh, Elizabethan love songs and he was, uh, played the lute. Played the lute, yeah. He was, from, he was from Westchester, Pennsylvania, tall, black, and openly gay. And I said, wait, what? And at that time, now that I look at look at it, at 19 years old, I was not out of the closet or anything like that. But I was like, oh, because I, I didn't I didn't see examples from from myself like how to be in the world or how I can be. And then I was like, wait, so I was drawn to him. I was like, okay, so this person was such a singular human being and smart and interesting, and and he did something for our entire country. He devoted his life to service for our country, and nobody knows about him. Why? Oh, it's because he didn't fit the profile of what representations of the civil rights movement look like. So he was very much, you know, <laughs> hidden. What did they look like? What what did representations of the civil rights movement look like? It looked like Martin Luther King. It looked like Ralph Abernathy. It looked like cis men. It looked like, you know, men buttoned up with suits and ties on. And there was, and I see, to be honest, when I look at it, there was a need for that because it was a cohesive need of like saying, this is how we represent ourselves. Right. But Bayer was always an outlier. And that was also part of his gift. He he saw things differently. You know what I mean? All the, and people always think that, especially when you really unpack the civil rights movement and you look at any of these movements of galvanizing so many African-Americans and white folks as well for civil and human rights, people always think it was a very monolithic I- ideals that they had. Like, no, there were all these different groups with different ideas on how to get things done. Are arguing and fighting and, and, arguing and, and alienating fighting one and another. Nasty and yeah. alienating, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And Bayer Rustin, a queer Quaker from Westchester, Pennsylvania, was the one who had the idea to galvanize everyone and how to form coalitions with unions and things like that. So he was just such a fascinating human being. And I think, and I started to realize that that was part of his uh, gift. That's the first part of my conversation with the actor Coleman Domingo. More with him coming up. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon, and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favorite song in his entire catalog, Here, There, and Everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the actor Coleman Domingo, who's all the talk these days because of a role he played this year that a lot of people think will take him from being the consummate supporting actor, you know, the best friend to the Oscar for Best Actor in a Lead Role. It's for the new film, Rustin, which is a new movie about the forgotten civil rights leader, Bayard Rustin. He was an advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. He taught him about passive resistance. He was one of the organizers of the March on Washington. Here's a clip uh, from the film of Coleman as Rustin advising Dr. King. We need you to lead us into Los Angeles. 
where we will most vigorously let Kennedy and the entire Democratic Party know that unless they show up for our people, our people will not show up for them. Yes. Do this, Martin. Own your power. Here's what else you should know. Bayard Rustin was an openly gay black man in the 50s and 60s, a conscientious objector who got a lot of criticism for resisting the draft. And he didn't look or speak like a lot of other leaders in the civil rights movement. So when you're Coleman Domingo and you're embodying this guy and President Obama is one of the producers of the film and is looking over your shoulder, how do you handle taking on someone like that? Coleman will tell you it comes with paying attention to the small details. You had to work vocally. You had to work physically, you had to work uh, emotionally, and you had to work vocally. You were able to speak to uh, activists who knew Bayard Rustin while he was organizing the March on Washington. Uh, uh, Bayard Rustin's voice has a very particular sound, um, as does yours in, in the film. How did they literally help you find your voice for this film? As I was doing my research on Bayard, I would hear a mid-Atlantic accent from time to time. I would hear a British accent. His voice is... It sits a bit up here, actually. And he would do, it would sing a bit up here. And he would sing up here too, because he was the tenor. So that's a lot to maintain for a film, to be honest. But also that's what he spoke. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And also right, right. what was interesting to me, it was, was like, it kept changing. I was like, what is this accent? What, but he's from Westchester, Pennsylvania. Did he spend time in London? Or like, how did, what is this accent? And I asked Rochelle Horowitz, who is one of his dearest friends and comrades, who's also featured in the film, played by Lily Kay, beautifully. I said, uh, I said, well, what is this accent? She said, well, he made that up. I said, Whoa. I was blown away by it. I'm like, who makes up an accent? First of all, I think that's kind of dope. But then I also thought, well, what are the reasons why? She said, well, he did have a speech impediment. He, and he, he would use language to over-articulate. Who told you you are not our man? When C.L. first heard you speak, he rang me and said, buy it. This magic going on down here. You know what he saw? A star. And when that star starts to shine brighter than any other, including the most powerful Negro leaders that came before, they will do everything in their power to extinguish your light and put you in your place. The, the film, for people who don't know, was produced by the, um, the production company owned by the, the Obamas. And I, I guess it made me think a little bit about, I mean, the number of speeches. And, and I read when I read the former president's book and I, and I was, you know, uh, following his, his, his life and his speeches over the years. One thing I found that he keeps on, uh, maybe this is just me reading into the film. But one thing I feel like comes up over and over again in the way he talks about history is that actual work and actual change gets done not through cinematic historical figures that were taught in school, but by often boring work done by remarkable people in an uncinematic way. Yes. And that's exactly what I love about our film, because there's so many scenes, it's really just about organizing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it makes it kind of sexy. There's nothing happening but people in a room fighting out the best way to do something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. To make a film about organizing sexy and interesting is very co courageous, I think. And I think, because I think, well, but I know that the purpose of it is like you said, we're trying to rouse people to believe that they have power, to own their power in whatever, wherever they are in the landscape. 
that like that they owning their power is the most important thing and owning their space. Every single person had something to do and was a part of the movement. And I think I think it's trying to rouse people with that spirit now, because, we, you know, especially right now when things feel so dark in this world, you know, people don't know what to do. And I think and I'm always telling people, just do what's in front of you. Do, do that simple thing that you can do today. That's all that's required. That means you're a part of it. Did you talk to the president about it? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'll wait you out. I'll sit here. I'll sit here all day. <laughs> listen, listen, President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama could not have been more supportive and loving and caring, especially around this first narrative feature. President Barack Obama told me, he literally told me, he said, well, there, if there was no by Rustin, there would be no Barack Obama because I, I followed him as a North Star on how to be a community leader. They, they made sure that they were available. They noted the film and went through drafts. They noted, you know, by the time we got to uh, the edits, they were very much in on the edits and wanted to make sure that this film was what they hoped it could be. I mean, they're, they're two people who are very much and that's the thing, getting to know them, I know truly it's in their soul that it's a life of service. You know, and then I think as an artist, I try to, I, I try to, I think even find that for myself even more so now of like, what am I doing with, what, what am I doing? What am I doing on this planet with what I have and the platform I have? I tell you what, I tell you what you're doing. I mean, to take it down to a concrete level, you're doing a lot. Like I, I went to see the color purple the other night, uh, the screening of the musical version of the color purple. You were in that. You were in Sing Sing, the new one of the new A twenty four movies, and you're in you're in Rustin. Coleman, that's a lot. How you how are you doing with it? Are you tired? <laughs> I sound very lazy. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Coleman, can you get on the couch and do something? Listen, it feels great, man. Especially you naming these three films. These are things that I. I I'm very, very, I'm very conscious of what I do and what I'm going to be a part of because I feel like um, I just want to be useful with my, my gifts, my talents. And especially now, I've been working now for, what, 33 years, amassed some respect in this industry and, you know, I have my own home and, you know, I can eat where I want to. Now, even more, more so of a choice to be even clear about what I do. So even like my film Sing Sing, I put I put that together with my production company and uh, and the other production companies, and it's an independent feature that we just did because we believed it mattered. These stories of you know incarcerated men working out their emotions and feelings while on parole, you know, by putting on a play, a rehabilitation through theater arts program that's in Sing Sing. So that was important to us to create this narrative. And believe that these stories matter. And, and this helps move the needle on our humanity. You have more programs like this. It really helps rehabilitation. And whether, you know, I like to create things, whether or not they're going to be sold or not, too. That's just what I do. I've always done that. I've always invested in myself. I'm like, let me do this thing because I feel like it matters in the world. Whether we get a return or not, I don't know. We've been talking about all the really amazing things that you, you've been doing. About if we talk about Sing Sing, talking about Rustin, br- briefly about the color purple. There's a lot being asked of you right now. There's a lot being talked of you right now. You're you're a, a big uh, favorite for Oscar nominations this year. Do you care about that? By the way, is that a thing? Why not? <laughs> I, I wouldn't be honest if I say it didn't matter. Yeah, I think what matters is 
for this role. I actually was thinking about this in the car, to be honest. I thought if, if, if the winds blow my way for that sort of honor, what it does, especially for the role, it honors by Rustin, it honors Ella Baker, it honors A. Philip Randolph, Cleve Robinson, all these organizers. I feel like it puts them, plants them deeply in the center of history. And I feel like, honestly, it's like, I know I gave everything I had in my heart and leadership and soul to do this work. And if it's amplified with that, more people get to see the film, more people feel it inspired, it moves the needle. So I, I, so I, I'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't matter. I feel like not that, it, not that I did it for it, but if it comes, I, I'm for it. But, but it reminds me of at the very beginning of, of Rustin, where your character talks about the importance of owning your power. And, and as an actor who's been in the industry for three decades, who started out as a, as a clown in a children's political circus, uh, who is now riding this giant wave of huge projects and praise right now, whether it be production, uh, uh, directing, acting. How do you feel, to close things off, how do you feel in this moment that you're owning your power? I started owning my power when I was about 21 years old, when I first started in this industry, when I started, even when I had small professional theater companies. I don't know where this has come from. I think that I knew that the only power that I had was the fact that I can create and no one can tell me not to create. That is a gift. And I knew that early on because also that had to be a little bit of my armor going into this industry because the industry wasn't set up for me to, to thrive in. It just wasn't. For what I was interested in doing, the characters that I wanted to be a part, play, it wasn't set up. I was set up to be a drug dealer, uh, character, you know, peripheral characters, characters that were like, you know, villains in some way. And it took me a it took me a long time. It, it took me a long time. I started. That's why I became a writer and a director and a and a, a producer. I, I was going to always stay in it in some way and find my way around it. And so it's just continually been amplified of owning my power in every stage. And so that's something I've all, I've always told my my fellow colleagues: write for yourself, create that thing, find that way to do it. Don't wait on this industry. Just don't. I never waited. Even in this moment now where people are saying, oh, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of offers and things coming out. There are, there are, but there's nothing more important to me than what I'm creating myself. I believe that's only your power. It's like, wonderful. I'm in a swirl of lots of offers and directors and producers. People are coming at me in a beautiful way. I also have projects that I care about that I want to do and get, and get off the ground. And I think that and nothing can be more important than what I can create myself and with my comrades. And I feel like maybe that's owning my power. That's so so well said, and, and so so such a, a such a beautiful thing, uh, Coleman. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. It's good to talk to you again. Coleman Domingo stars in the film Rustin on Netflix. It's about the late civil rights leader Bayard Rustin. You can also catch Coleman in another big movie this holiday season: uh, the new adaptation of The Color Purple, which came out on Christmas Day. Elizabeth. 
That's Kaya Cater and her song, St. Elizabeth. Kaya is one of the finest folk singers and banjo players in Canada right now. But like a lot of musicians these days, she spends a lot of time uh, not on stage, but online. She'll tell you about this one thing that happened when she was about to do a virtual concert that inspired her new song, The Internet. If you, like me, are trying to take a little time away from your phone these days, you might relate to it. Here's Kaya Cater to set up her new song. Kaya, how are you? I'm good. It's always great to talk with you, Tom. Uh, it's nice to talk to you, too. I, I really I really love this song, um, The Internet. Tell me a little bit about what inspired it. Uh, it was early pandemic days. Uh, and it was kind of that era where everything moved from... Like, if a physical show got canceled, it would move to be a virtual show. And so we were all figuring out how to get online together. Um, and it was super chaotic. And I I was getting ready for one of these virtual shows. And, uh, you know, I had my guitar and my banjo and I was all set up and, and set to go live. And then I accidentally knocked over a glass of water, like, directly onto my MacBook keyboard. And my computer died um, and it was just this really odd moment where like this world that I was set to like connect to and this thing that I do for my career, this show that was going to happen just suddenly glitched out and and couldn't happen. And I couldn't get the the um, video working on my phone. And I ended up having to cancel this virtual show. Um, and it just felt like so bizarre and so different from what I'd been doing, like even a month prior, I'd been on tour with with real people facing real audiences. Um, and so I had a glass of wine and I cried a little bit because I just felt so isolated. And then I wrote this song. It just kind of came out all in one go. Who am I now without the internet? I'm not the saint, the fiend, the stupid machine liking likes. Like I should like the internet. The, the, the song doesn't seem to just be about that isolated incident. The song doesn't necessarily seem to be about even just the experience of during the pandemic and how, I mean, in some ways I was really comforted by how live music didn't really work out on, on Zoom and, and, and over streaming. <laughs> like, I, you know, because I think a lot of things, a lot of things we found out did work really well on, on, on Zoom and on streaming. I was very grateful that live music didn't really work out. The song doesn't seem to just be about that time or that experience. It seems like a, 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 you're in a more broad way talking about the internet. Yeah, I am. And, you know, I tried to lean into kind of some tongue in cheek stuff and and maybe trying to bring some humor into it because I'd always associated uh, great songwriting with serious songwriters. And I'd always kind of blocked off this this part of my brain, part of my life, which is like this great love for laughing and jokes and, you know, funny stuff. And, and so I kind of wrote the internet as a joke. I was like, oh, I'm just going to get this out. Like, you know, I can only talk to you through the internet in bits and bytes and right angles. Like, just kind of like this frustration of, oh, this is so weird. And like, why are we doing this? And why are we like double clicking on glass to show each other that we appreciate each other's lives and, you know, referencing social media and stuff? Um, yeah. And I, I just kind of was like, oh, I'll get it out and I'll never put it out. Um but then I, I was playing it for audiences and they started really appreciating it. I mean, like once we got back to performing 
And there was this kind of feeling that this sentiment was like universal, this like weird frustration, but also like attraction and maybe addiction to our screens and connection, but also isolation. Um, and so I decided to record it. And then I, I thought about so many songwriters who do have really funny lyrics like John Prine, um, for example, you know, and like how much I connect to his work. And it's not just like the serious stuff. Sometimes it is, you know, like it, the song In Spite of Ourselves. Like that always makes me laugh. It's a great song. She thinks all my jokes are corny. Convict movies make her horny. She likes ketchup on her scrambled eggs. Swears like a sailor when she shaves her legs. She takes a and, and people, folks like John Prine and I, I like I'd add Randy Newman there too. Like they have a way of writing like funny songs that also are devastating and 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 biting. And maybe this I have to say this one kind of felt like that to me too. Well, it, anyway, I can be compared to Randy Newman and John Prine. I'll take <laughs> what's your what, What's your relationship like uh, with the internet now? Is I mean, you know, all these years on, especially as a folk musician. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's very, it's very stop start. Um, you know, right now, uh, of course, like yeah, I'm going to be promoting this single and eventually an album and so I'm I'm very online um and I recently got on TikTok and I and I started talking on TikTok about how the banjo is a is a West African instrument originally because I'm a banjo player and that has started an entire firestorm which I find is like quite hilarious like there are people saying like no it's not like why why do you, why do you have to bring race into this? And so I don't know. I I've, I've kind of been like leaning into some of the the weirder sides of the internet and just kind of being cool with being me. I think I've gotten a lot more comfortable than I used to be. Before we go, before I get you to introduce the song, the bridge I found really interesting. The bridge of the song is sort of, um, how do I put this? Sort of like garbled, unintelligible words. To me, that sounded like, I mean, actually, no, I'm not going to put myself in, in, in it. Uh, tell, tell, me, tell me about the bridge of the song before people hear it. Well, I, I wonder if what you were going to say is it sounds maybe like dial-up internet or like modem. It sounds like a missed connection on the internet, like when you can't hear somebody or you can't reach somebody or you are just having a hard time understanding them on FaceTime or on something like that was what I was going to say. Yeah, there, there, that was definitely a lot of the intention behind it. Um, I was honestly, I lifted an idea from a Kate Bush song. She has a song on her record, Hounds of Love, called Watching You Without Me. Come let you know. And to me, this song is just about kind of her not being able to connect with maybe her partner in their home and just kind of feeling like a ghost and they just can't quite see each other. Um, and, and there's this bridge where uh, she kind of has this kind of garbled language and I just found it so interesting. Um, and so I wanted to recreate that. 
And I think I was I was thinking a lot, yeah, about like when you're on FaceTime with somebody and you're having a moment or you're halfway through describing like a a deep thing that you went through or some sadness and then it kind of cuts out or somebody else is talking and it cuts out and it's just this strange disorienting thing. Um, and so I, I think I wanted to represent that in the bridge as this kind of antidote to the like folky guitar riff. Well, I'm, I'm excited for people to listen to the song. Um, Kaya, uh, before you, can you, can you set up the song for us? Yeah, um, I'm Kaya Cater and this song is called The Internet. I can only talk to you through the internet In bits and in bites and right angles Carved up my life just for the internet You take the wing, the wing, shoulder and sing all hail to our God, the internet. I spilled my drink onto the internet. Everything twitched and was gone. Saint, the feet, the stupid machine liking likes like I should like the internet. song the internet before that you heard my conversation with kaya the great canadian folk singer she joined me from new york city and that is it for the show today uh, tomorrow on the show diantha edmonds was just named to the order of canada she's the first inuk professional soprano she'll tell you how her path to opera was kickstarted by her community in nunatsiavut had been singing classical music for generations plus she'll tell you what it's like to perform for both king charles and the Pope. That's it for me. If you want to get in touch with the show, q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. Um, if you want to reach me on Instagram, I'm actually taking a little break from Instagram right now. I'm, I'm doing a, I think I mentioned this maybe the other day, I'm doing a dry January social media, like instead of alcohol, social media. So I'm, I'm giving it all up for January. Uh, so yeah, maybe q at cbc.ca is the best way to get in touch with me. We'll see you soon. Later on. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.